0: Well, a few weeks back, uh, we left off with Daniel kind of in the middle of receiving this this final vision uh, in the book of Daniel that, that he would receive. And he was there by the river Tigris, and suddenly, uh, as he's by there in the river uh, Tigris, chapter 10 told us that this dazzling figure appeared, a man clothed in linen. Uh, Daniel begins to learn about an invisible war that's taking place. It would take three weeks for this angel to get there because he's wrestling with the prince of Persia. So he kind of gets a peek behind the curtain to see what's happening uh, in the midst of when you're praying for things and how there is a bigger thing, a bigger scenario that's taking place. The angel would then proceed to tell him What would take place in the future uh, that would be to come over the next four or five hundred years and even to the end of human history? Now, uh, as you read through chapter 11, uh, 1 through 35, we're not going to do that today, but you get one of the most detailed. Uh, perspectives of the visions that Daniel has been receiving. In these verses, uh, the angel predicts in great detail uh, the wars that will be fought between the kings of the north, Syria, and the kings of the south, Egypt. And that's something that did take place in history. Now, it's been said that in chapter 11 alone that there are over 100 prophecies in that particular chapter that were fulfilled. Now, all of these kings are leading up to kind of an ultimate king, and that is the king of the north. Now, despite popular opinion, that is not John Snow. Um, but in chapter 11, verse 21, it tells us that this king of the north would be a very contemptible uh, person, uh, for he will desecrate God's temple. So he would go into the temple there in Israel. Uh, he would severely persecute the Jewish people. And we know from history that this took place around 165, 172 to 165 by an evil king by the name of Antiochus, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, right? So uh, we've talked about this guy a lot. We talked about the time of the Maccabees a few chapters back, so I'm not going to repeat or rehearse uh, those things. But the main idea for Daniel is that even though Israel would be going home, they'd be leaving Babylon after the 70 years, which was predicted by Jeremiah the prophet, even though they were going home from exile, it did not mean that their life was free from pain and tribulation. Like they weren't just gonna sail off into the sunset and live in Jerusalem happily ever after. As a matter of fact, these stories, like these prophecies tell us that life was gonna be very hard for Israel. I think most of us could understand, like life is hard, life is difficult. There are trials, there's tribulations, there's stuff that we go through. That is what Daniel is portraying for Israel until this time of the end, that God's people in Israel for centuries to come, even to today, will be caught in the middle of all of these wars And they're going to suffer greatly up until what we're gonna see here today, this thing called the time of the end where we see the last earthly kingdom with a last earthly king be ushered out and a new everlasting kingdom, this final kingdom that we've been discussing, will be established, which is the kingdom of God. So uh, let's listen to how the angel describes this last leader. So we have these, these leaders, we have world history kind of taking place. We talked about Medes and Persians and uh, the Syrians and Egyptians and all of these different armies. We talked about the kings of, of Greece. And now we come to this kind of last king, Antiochus, that, w- that would usher in this time. And then finally there's a break in this last chapter, chapter 11, into chapter 12. And it tells us in verse 36, it shifts gears and starts talking about what most commentators believe is a new and different king sometime later. It says in verse 36 of chapter 11, and the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these, a god whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses With the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many, and he shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land. And tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and, he, uh, he, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold, of silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. He shall go out with great fury to destroy and, devo- uh, and devote many to destruction and he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. It would seem, most commentators believe, that the angel now shifts from this man Antiochus to an Antiochus type person, to an Antiochus, uh, to a type that is like him, but even greater and more evil than him, during what is called now the time of the end. Now, the time of the end most likely means the time prior to the second coming of Christ. Uh, The angel begins to describe a final war, what we would look at in the book of Revelation as this final war of Armageddon taking place in human history. Now, this particular leader talks about a few characteristics of him here uh, is is war is his like deity. Uh, He's very powerful. Uh, this is an evil person. The New Testament calls him the Antichrist. And at the end of the time, uh, the Antichrist will make war with God's people. Now, instead of the other gods, which he has rejected, some people think that that means maybe uh, the gods of uh, like Judaism, that he rejected Yahweh. Other people think maybe it's Islam. There's all sorts of speculation that you can find out who he's rejecting. The point is, those are not his God. And the God that he serves is a God of fortresses. So literally it means he is a man of war and his desire is to continue to gain more and more world power. To those who acknowledge him as kind of this king of kings, the Bible says he will give the land and make them rulers over many. Now it's possible that that is a reference, that the divided land is a reference to Israel itself, but it doesn't necessarily have to mean that. It could just mean lands anywhere. Thus, with warfare and political favors for his supporters, the Antichrist will rapidly gain control of the world. This is something that we are looking for in the future. Now, it sounds like this will be just kind of another battle. If you read through chapter 11, that there's these battles of north and south and all these various kings and there's marriages that have been arranged and then broken and all these treaties that have been broken. And it sounds kind of like it's just another part of that particular story. But the author here, Daniel, references over and over now in this last section that this is the time of the end meaning that the stakes are seemingly raised. The kings of the north and the king of the south now are symbols of the combatants in the final war that is waged on the earth. Now the king of the north is antichrist, the king of the south possibly represents a nation truly to the south, uh, but it's a nation that is wanting to protect God's people. Now, the Antichrist, it says, will rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen with ships. The battle is pictured as being fought with like primitive weapons of the day, but if we know like today, it very well could be Massive weapons of like mass destruction. Verse 41 talks about uh, the beautiful land and tens of thousands shall fall victim, but Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites will escape from his power. Literally the beautiful land would be the land of Israel, the place where God's people lived. Uh, verse 41 predicts Edom. And They're going to escape. So the Antichrist will not attack the enemies of his people. These nations become literally his allies. Verse 42 and 43 talks about him stretching out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt. Shall not escape. He's going to become a ruler. He's going to have lots of silver and gold. And the point is is that it seems like nothing is going to stop this last kingdom it seems like this ruler is so much greater and so much more powerful. Israel is going to be defeated. Uh, God's people are going to be demolished wherever God's people are. He is going to conquer even a major power like Egypt of that day, perhaps Egypt of uh, today, but he's gonna strip nations of their wealth and he's gonna become super rich. Libya and Ethiopia were located west and south of Egypt. The idea is that this king is taking control over territories, all over the earth but just as quickly as the antichrist achieves great power so the bible tells us here his time will quickly come to an end Uh, verse 44 says uh, reports from east and north shall alarm him and he shall go out with fury to bring ruin and complete destruction to many Uh, he's going to seek to destroy and annihilate many verse 45 says he's going to pitch his palatial tent between the sea and the beautiful holy mountain literally the mediterranean and mount zion so the angel here describes the antichrist's last desperate assault upon his people But just when it looks like Antichrist is going to annihilate them, uh, the end, verse 45 predicts, he shall come to his end with no one to help him, suddenly, unexpectedly, but absolutely certainly. For this is judgment day. Uh, Daniel 7, 26, we looked at this. Uh, It's the same picture we got there about Antichrist and the time of the end. It says, the court shall sit in judgment. His dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and totally destroyed. Now, in the New Testament, Paul echoes this same thought with this same particular person. Uh, he calls this person, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. And it says, Then the lawless will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will destroy with the breath of his mouth, annihilating him by the manifestation of his coming. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. In other words, summing all this up, in the midst of this time of terrible tribulation, where God's people are suffering and there's persecution, there's persecution. God comes, God rescues, God saves, and God wins. And this is going to be what we look at right now. Look at chapter 12, verses one through three. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people, "...shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake." This idea of sleep and awake are those who have died. "...some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above." and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. What Daniel learns here is that at the end of this book that he has talked about with kingdoms fighting kingdoms and the brutality of dictators and politics and uh, fiery furnaces and lion's dens, uh, this, this book where Daniel has lived a life Talking about wars and brutal battles, hardships and difficulty, persecution and anguish. At the end of this book, he gets this word that says, Hope is coming. That hope for God's people is found somewhere. And you'll notice that the hope for God's people is not found here. Like if you're Israel reading this book and you're like, Man, Daniel's a prophet. And and, and you're reading Daniel and you're hearing Daniel, you're looking ahead to just brutal wars. It'd be like World War I, World War II, over and over and over, repeated upon your country throughout history. There's not a lot of hope in that. But what Daniel gives here is he says, there is hope, it's not here. There is a hope found in this subject called everlasting life. Something that we know about in the book of Revelation is what we will find in this thing called the new heavens and the new earth earth, that hope is found in the last everlasting kingdom that will be established. Now today, I want to just take some time here because I really think that that is the focal point of this text is that Daniel is receiving hope here in a life that's been very much filled with hopelessness, darkness, tragedy, hardship, right? And now at the end of this book, the angel says, there is going to be a time where people will awake. They will resurrect to everlasting life or everlasting shame or contempt. Now, what that means is that this life is not the end. Like, what you go through here is not final. There is something else coming. And each one of us, according to the scriptures, will spend eternity somewhere. Now, the idea that we will live forever uh, somewhere has shaped almost every civilization throughout human history. Now, I know in our culture today, atheists are very loud and there's nothing else to come after this. They're just loud. Uh, But in every culture up until today, there has been an understanding of there is an afterlife. Uh, The ancient Egyptian book of the dead is full of tales of life after death. Uh, One of the ancient pharaohs who died some 5,000 years ago, uh, his tomb contained a solar boat that was designed to carry him through the heavens into eternity. Uh, Ancient Greeks were often buried with a coin in their mouths to pay their fare, to cross the River Styx into the land of the dead. So there was an understanding that this is not it. Native Americans were buried with their bow and arrows and ponies so they would be ready to hunt when they arrived at the happy hunting ground. That's how I want to go. The ancient Vikings believed in a place, you can just bury me with my pony and my bow, um, where they believed that they would fight all day long. These are the, the Vikings. They believed that every day was a fight. In the heavens to come uh, That the dead would be raised And the wounded would be healed every single evening Then they would feast and they would drink that night Then they would go out just to fight again Which is kind of like being a groupie for an 80s rock band Now, the Muslims look forward to their version of heaven Which was very sensual That's that's what Islam looks forward to It's physical pleasure It's all that you can indulge in And it's awesome if you're a man Uh, Benjamin Franklin, who is not a Christian wrote the following words in a mock epitaph. He says, The body of Benjamin Franklin, a printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents worn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here, food for worms. Yet the work itself shall not be lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more beautiful edition corrected and amended by its author. The point is that even though throughout history the concept of life after death has differed for different cultures, there has been a unifying thread that this life is not it, that there is something more out there. Uh, The early Christians were very passionate about heaven uh, for good reason because many of them died very early, right? So that was their only hope. Many of their lives were cut short due to time periods of massive persecution. Uh, I had the privilege uh, a while back of visiting the catacombs in Rome, and heaven was portrayed in picture. Uh, The walls would portray heaven with like beautiful landscapes and children playing and people feasting, right? Paul the apostle, when writing about the subject of heaven, had passionate joy when he talked about that particular subject. He would say things like, for me to live is Christ, but to die, is gain. Like it is so much better. I desire to depart and be with Christ, he said, which is better by far, Philippians 1.21. He also wrote, as long as we are at home in this body, as long as we're here in this body, we are in a sense away from the Lord. And then he says, I or we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord, Second Corinthians 5, 6, and 8, which helps us to understand that when you die, you go to be with the Lord. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Now, all the New Testament authors had just a deep affection and a hope for this next realm. Like heaven was what they lived for. They weren't living for Friday, right? They they weren't living for the next uh, thing here. There was something that they deeply longed for, and that was this hope in heaven. Daniel here ends this book that's filled with just bloody human history. It's filled with wars and battles and kingdoms and tragedies with the hope that there is a better king and a better kingdom that is coming, and it is a everlasting kingdom with this concept of everlasting life and it just doesn't mean you're just living no it's life being at the fullness of what it could possibly be so my question for us as we kind of come to the end of this book of Daniel as we live life and as we go through our own persecutions and trials here do we have the same affection the same stirring the same same hope in what is coming ahead because it's beautiful Is there a deep and longing and excitement and a delight and a joy in our hope in the kingdom to come? Now, many people don't find that joy at all in the idea of heaven or everlasting life. And I think it's because our perspectives or what we have believed about heaven has been deeply uh, skewed. Like when I say the term heaven or everlasting life, what first comes to mind? I've said this before, but when I was growing up, heaven was essentially just the place you eternally went to like when you died. You just kind of went to this floaty place. My theology came more from like Looney Tunes uh, than the Bible. Uh, Wiley e. Coyote, who would get like an anvil dropped on his head or fall off a cliff, you know, he'd get his wings and he'd kind of just float up there in this like state where, you know, you're, you're just kind of like a spiritual... Uh, Type of being, and you just kind of see him floating there with his halo and his wings, right? Um, as I got older, I started reading comics. I was a big fan of the Far Side. Anybody miss those? Uh, those comics, heaven was portrayed how? Typically with a chubby guy who had lost all of his hair, sitting on a cloud, strumming his harp, right? Um, so my understanding of heaven was that heaven was this like eternally disembodied state with angelic souls kind of floating on clouds without their bodies in eternal bliss and meditation and contemplation. That idea is much more, it comes much more from Gnosticism and Plato than it actually does the Bible. Now, if you take that, which was my basic theological understanding of heaven growing up then you add in a little bit of revelation five and now instead of writing on clouds we're spending our disembodied eternity in an unending worship service just singing as a teenager Uh, the idea of a never-ending church service in a disembodied state with men on clouds strumming harps for eternity sounded a lot more like hell than it did heaven right that's kind of how it was for me uh, for some, their, their perspective of what heaven looked like uh, is like the big family reunion. It's like family's all going to be back together again. That could be hell if you have a hellish, like perverse uh, person in your family, right? Because a lot of us got like Uncle Rico, like hanging around, and that pervert, if he's going to be up there while I'm in heaven in my disembodied state, strumming on clouds, that's awkward. Um, People Magazine asked celebrities several years back. What is your idea of heaven? Because we all can have a perspective. If you haven't thought about it, you should. But what is your perspective of heaven? Uh, A guy, Eddie Falco, said, this is my perspective of heaven. Finding a parking space in front of my house, right? Now, we all can feel that if you've ever tried to park downtown Bend. But Eddie Falco, that's that's it, finding a parking spot, right? Uh, Billy Bob Thornton, right? Great theologian. uh, Living on a lily pad with all the German chocolate cake and fried okra I could eat with all of my children. Okay, uh, Uma Thurman. Uh, it would be sweet, intimate, pretty, and really, really private. Okay, uh, Adam Mesh. All you could eat buffets where you never get full. A basketball court where I could actually dunk, and I'd still have all of my hair. Uh, Ludicrous. The great theologian. A life of no work and just spending money. There's no limit to what I could spend money on. Now, those are all just simply selfish views of heaven. It's like, it's like, what do I want? And then just give it to me there, right? These are all unbiblical perspectives of heaven. And it's basically a selfish motives being lived out eternally, which once again, if everybody just got to live out their selfish motives for eternity, that's hell. I mean, that's what hell is right there. Um, and honestly, if that's heaven, that's not worth hoping in where we're just getting what we want, right? Uh, it falls woefully short, of addressing what's really wrong with this world, our own selfishness, or realizing the plan of God's good creation from the beginning. So we need a better, more biblical perspective understanding of what is everlasting life. Like, what is heaven? What what is this going to be like? Should I really look forward to this? Well, the Bible talks about the new heavens and the new earth. It kind kind of builds on this idea of Daniel. And it talks about that it is the better kingdom and the better king that really our hearts truly long for. And so today, my hope is as we've come to the end of Daniel, you're going, man, the kingdoms of this world are terrible. Is there anything good that is coming? And the answer is yes. Well, what is it? I want to give you a taste of what we are going to be looking forward to. So in order to do that, I got to uh, be a little bit nerdy and give you some theology on what the Bible actually teaches concerning heaven. So what is heaven? What is everlasting life? During this present age, okay, the place where God dwells is what we frequently call heaven. So it's the place where God dwells. The Lord says, Isaiah 66, 1, heaven is my throne. It's the place where he lives, right? It's the place where he rules from. Jesus teaches us to pray, our father who art in heaven, place where God dwells. 1 Peter three twenty-two 22 says, uh, Jesus now has gone into heaven. And it says, Peter says, he is at the right hand of God. So it is the place, once again, where God dwells. This means heaven is is a real place it's not just like a state of mind okay it's not just like an alternative universe or something like that no this means that heaven is a real place and it's the place that jesus actually ascended into in Acts chapter 1. It's the place where Jesus himself promised, he went to prepare a place for you. He says, "Hey, don't worry. I'm going away. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to go and prepare something for you." Uh the Bible says, "I has not seen nor ear has heard the wonderful things that God has in store for us." There. We can't even fathom how amazing it's going to be. Although we get little pieces of what it might be, we can't fathom how awesome it's going to be. According to Grudem, he defines this current heaven. So this heaven, place where God dwells, where he is now, right now, as we talk, heaven is the place where God most fully makes known his presence to bless. That's heaven. What this means is that when you die, as we read before in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when you die, you don't simply cease to exist. You don't just go to sleep. The body goes into the dirt, but you don't just cease to to exist. The Bible shows us the body goes in the grave. Your spirit in some form goes to what we would call now heaven. Okay. Some also refer to this place as paradise. Others in theological circles call this the intermediate state. Why do they call it the intermediate state? Because most Christians have this place and this place alone in mind when we think about heaven and eternity, this intermediate state this place where God is right now. We tend to think that it's that place where the soul goes to be with the Lord, and that's just kind of where we are with our souls with the Lord. We're in his presence, and that's, that's just all that heaven is. No, you are not going to live in that intermediate state in heaven forever. By definition, an intermediate state is just that, temporary, right? Uh, this place called heaven is better uh, than where Paul was in a prison cell, But it is not the end, the final of what God had in store for his people. Uh, The illustration is like this. If you're flying somewhere, like if I'm going to Burkina, we often make a stop in like uh, some European country for 24 hours. So, you know, we're in Amsterdam or we're in London or we're in in Paris. Now, you get to see a lot of cool things, but it's not the end. And I'm not trying to say that Burkina is heaven because it is not heaven. Uh, But it is just simply a stop on the way before you get to the final destination, okay? The Bible teaches us that something, something different than what we currently understand is heaven, something different than this intermediate state is actually coming. The Bible teaches that God, after the day of the Lord, after there's this time of judgment, he's actually, the Bible says, creating a new heaven and a new earth, according to the end of Revelation, And it is joined together, the new heaven and the new earth, joined together. In other words, his kingdom comes. Uh, Revelation picks up where Daniel kind of leaves off, and it adds to Daniel's vision. You'll hear some things that are very similar. Uh, You'll notice some incredible similarities. Turn to Revelation chapter 20, and I'm going to read to you starting in verse 11. And you'll hear how John, the revelator, several hundred years after Daniel, is adding, he's building onto this concept of a book and everlasting life and judgment, some of these things that Daniel's talked about. Now, a lot of people think that Daniel is kind of the key to kind of unlock the door of prophecy and revelation. There's some validity in that. It, it kind of it is the stepping stone to help us to understand uh, what's going on in revelation. The Bible tells us this, Revelation twenty, eleven. Then I saw a great white throne, remember this, from Daniel chapter 7, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. We talked about that just a minute ago in Daniel. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he, he who is seated on the throne, said, "Behold, I am making all things new." Also, he said, "Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true." He said to me, "It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, notice that term, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment." Chapter twenty-two. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruits yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, or you could say kingdoms. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, his name will be on their foreheads, And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Notice, the Bible pictures this new Jerusalem, this amazing city, which was in heaven, is coming down out of heaven from God. And where does it go? To this new earth. From that time on, the Bible says, the dwelling of God will be with redeemed mankind on earth. Some argue that the new earth shouldn't be called heaven, but it seems clear that if God's special dwelling place is what we define heaven as, and we're told that the dwelling of God will be with mankind on earth, then heaven and the new earth are essentially in the same place. Now we're told that the throne of God and of the lamb is in the new Jerusalem. It's the place, the throne is where you reign and you rule from and that place is now collided with a part of this new earth, chapter 22, verse one. Again, it seems clear that wherever God dwells with his people, wherever God sits on a throne that is called heaven. So heaven and this new earth perspective is what we have to look forward to. Uh, Theologian Anthony Hokema, he writes this, the new Jerusalem does not remain in a heaven far off space, but it comes down to a renewed earth. There the redeemed will spend eternity in resurrected bodies, not just floating around. So heaven and earth now separated will then be merged. The new earth will also be heaven since God will dwell there with his people that God would come down to the new earth to live with us fits perfectly even in with original plan of creation. Think about it. God, when he creates Adam, has friendship with Adam. They have community together. They talk together. God could have said, okay, Adam, if you want to have a discussion with me, you're going to have to get on the heavenly elevator and you're going to have to come up to heaven and talk with me out of your world and into mine. Instead, what does God do? The Bible tells us he came down to walk with them in their world, Genesis 3, 8. Uh, Jesus says, of anyone who would be my disciple, my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with them, John 14, 23. This is a picture of God's ultimate plan, not to take us up to live in a realm made for him, but to come down and live with us in the realm he made for us. So do you hear what I'm saying? What Revelation does is Revelation brings the Bible back full circle. The Bible starts in a garden uh, on this earth without sin, where God dwelt with Adam and Eve, and he actually walks with them and talks with them and dwells with them. The Bible ends back in this garden in a redeemed, restored earth. In Eden, there was no sin, no death, no curse. On this new earth, once again, we come full circle. Uh, there's no more sin, no more death, no more curse. In Genesis, a redeemer is promised who will come to us. In Revelation, the redeemer is returned and he is ruling. In Genesis, paradise was lost. In Revelation, paradise is now regained. In Genesis, humanity's stewardship is virtually given away because of the fall. In Revelation, humanity's stewardship is given back to the divine king, Jesus. It's here that there are no more tears, there is no more pain, and there is no more death. It's what your heart deeply longs for. We deeply long for a forever world with all of the beauty and none of the ugliness of the curse of sin and death of the curse of the kingdoms that we've discussed and talked about, of the kingdoms that continue on to this day. It's the new Eden where you will have a new resurrected body and you will not be less human, but more human than you have ever, ever been. Where you will get to experience all the joys of what you experience here, but without the sin that you've done towards other to break relationship or the sins that have been done towards you. Without injustice, without hurt, without shame, without guilt, without pain, without suffering, without tribulation, it is what our heart longs for. And it's why we look at life here and we think, this isn't right. It's on the new earth that we get to do new earthly things like what? Well, like they were intended to do in the garden you eat, you drink, you enjoy rivers and city streets. The Bible talks about this paved street of gold. There will be a city. It will be beautiful. There will be imagination even beyond what we can fathom. There is music and there is art and activities done in its perfect state, all to the glory of God. There is creativity and ingenuity. There's invention. Uh, most writers tend to describe like amazing food. It's the marriage feast of the lamb. It's the better wine. It's the better party. It's the better garden. It's the more beautiful sunset. It's the better intimacy. It's the better relationship that we actually get to have with creation and creator. It's all of those things untainted by the fall. And you notice here, how does the Bible describe what this new Jerusalem is? This, it's described as a gift for a bride. Now You think about it. It's, it's wedding day where you just get lavished with amazing gifts. And what we see here is that our Father, God, is giving his best. He's giving something so incredibly good. And our hearts long for this beauty. Now, we get tastes of it, right? You get elements of it here because this is the better place. Uh, we get taste of it when you, when you celebrate with friends, uh, when you can dance and sing and enjoy good food or wine or whatever it is. You enjoy friendship and relationship and intimacy. You enjoy creation and beauty as you hike and you see the great things that God has done. We get taste of it, but then it passes. Heaven will be void of all of fear and death and tears, right? Because... It's not gonna be there. That isn't here though. Here, what do we have? We have loss. We weep. We weep when people go into the grave. We weep when we lose people. We weep over injustice. We weep over loss. And that's okay to do. Jesus showed us that. The God man who came down, who dwelt among us when his friend Lazarus died. Like he didn't say, hey, don't worry about it. I'm gonna resurrect him anyways. He didn't say, hey, don't worry about it. We're going to a better place. It's all going to be okay. No. He wept on behalf of his friend because he wept because the fall causes us to weep. Uh, Paul would say that for those that go into the grave, friends, family, spouses, husbands, like, like daughters, we weep, but we don't weep like those that have no hope because we have a hope. In an everlasting kingdom, there is something more beautiful that is coming. And I just want to paint this picture of beauty for us because we're going to experience loss. We're going to look at the stuff in this world and you're going to go, God, do you even care? Like, do you even know? And in the book of Daniel, he knew. He was writing out what human history was going to do. But he says, hope is coming and it's coming in a final resurrection and you're going to be a part of that, Daniel. That is your hope. Hope. But even more important than beauty. Okay, because we can describe the beauty and the awesome things that we're gonna get to experience in this new place. More important than God's people from all nations, which the nations are even gonna be healed, more important by far than freedom from even pain and sorrow, which we long for. More important by far, the Bible talks about this time. And it's gonna be different than than, than what we've experienced here, that the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them. And it says, and they shall be his people. This is the last kingdom. This is the final moment of history. And this is this moment where you will feel ultimately, finally home. This home here now, our natural state is not normal. What we see And what we hear people debate on talk radio and and we hear people discuss and tweet and argue about, this is not normal. Sin and death and suffering and war and poverty were not the way it was intended to be. It's not natural. The kingdoms of this world, they are not normal. World leaders are not normal. They are devastating results of rebellion against God. We long for a return to paradise. We long for it. We deeply long for this perfect world, which is why we debate all the stuff going on in our world, because we long for something that's so much better. Romans tells us that all creation is groaning. That's including you and even the person that doesn't believe that they were created. We long for something better. And what's amazing is that those desires that are deep down in there, there is a reality of those they're a reality of what God has promised. He promises a home that will never be destroyed. He promises a kingdom that will not fade. He promises a city with unshakable foundations. He promises an incorruptible inheritance. What does that do to your heart? Like for me, I I get excited about heaven. Sometimes I don't just give enough attention to the fact that God is creating something great and it is an actual reality and it's not just some figment of my imagination that's way out there, but heaven is the realest thing that is coming. It is the last kingdom and we will spend eternity somewhere. Personally, this just gives me understanding and it gives me hope. The understanding is that this is why, this is why, This hope that I have, this thing, eternity in my heart is why I am not satisfied here. It's why I get frustrated here. It's why you experience things and you're like, wait a minute, that was it? It's like when you were a kid and you did something, and you thought it was absolutely amazing, like the best thing in the world, and you go back to it and it's horrible, right? It's like you go to Disneyland, you're like, this is awesome. You go to Disneyland now and you're like, this is expensive, right? You're longing for a place a relationship that you never had. It's the hope that we have is that it has come in Christ and it is coming and will be ushered in and it is far greater than you could ever ask or think. For when God dwells with man, every living thing, including corrupt evil kingdoms, the Bible says there in Genesis or Revelation 22, even the nations, the nations are healed. Relationship with God, healed. Relationship with people around you, healed, restored. It is the better kingdom. Now we need this understanding and hope because this time here now on this earth is so mixed with both elements of beauty. Oh, I love that. And difficulty, I hate that. It's hard. This is why Daniel is given this final message of hope in the midst of tribulation you think about Israel in this, Israel gets their history and they're like, sweet, we're just going to get kicked around for centuries to come. And then there's a final kingdom. This is what we have to look forward to, right? It's like you're born, you get spanked on the butt and you just keep getting kicked ever since. Like that is what happens. We call it life. Um, And that is what they are going through. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult, but a better hope is coming. This is why Daniel, in his final message is given this final message of hope during Israel's greatest tribulation that would be coming. It's why in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter shares this hope with Christians who are suffering. He shares the same hope that there is a final kingdom coming, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. This is why John... The Revelator revealed this hope to Christians in Revelation that were being martyred and burned at the stake. They were being split in two. It was this hope, the hope of something coming, that allowed them to face far worse things than we may face here today. We need hope like this for courage because life is really hard. Listen to me. If you're dealing with stuff, you're dealing with frustration and pain. You're dealing with loss that has come or may be coming. If you have this hope, doesn't mean you don't weep, but if you have this hope that the king and his kingdom has come and is coming that helps you triumph over the junk that's here today. All of the worst evil that you can face is here today, but it's passing you will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And he walks through it with you, a good shepherd that's also experienced what it's like to walk through death. There's a better beauty. There's a better destiny. There's a better hope that's coming. And that changes you. You don't have to be bitter. You don't have to hold grudges. You can seek restoration, even as restoration is coming. We need this kind of hope to take the pressure off what we put so much pressure on today see the resurrection and the new earth is ultimate greatness that is what you long for that is what our heart desires that is when we look around and we're like how come this doesn't work it's because we know something should be working right the resurrection and the new earth is the ultimate greatness and your heart knows it if we are looking to our spouse or our kids or our job or our town or our events or our politics to be the thing that ultimately satisfies and fulfills you put way too much pressure on something that can't handle that much greatness. You put way too much weight on something that was never meant to hold it. And you can only put so much weight on the things here in this broken world until something breaks down because it will break. Often we put the hope of our soul on things that are here and now, and we have these deep desires, these longings, these groanings for the new creation, and we try to put it on here and it breaks You can talk to people like athletes, the elites of society that have arrived, they've made it to the top, they've done everything, and they have this sense that there is nothing. They've achieved highest standards, and there is nothing. What if that's because that can't hold that weight? What if you knew there was something so much better? I'm telling you today, as the Bible describes here and in Revelation, there is a better life And it is a everlasting life. If you're critical of everything here, like there's always something wrong with this, that, grumpy, complain all the time, right? It's because you're putting too much hope on stuff that was never meant to take it. But there is a resurrection. There is a new heaven. There is a new earth. And if you get that, you can enjoy what's here because it doesn't take the fullness of your hope how do I get that hope? What do I need to do for this hope? Well, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 21 verse six, what does it say? Who gets this hope? Who gets this water? It doesn't say the good. It doesn't say the just. It doesn't say the moral. It doesn't say the honest. It says who? Verse six, Revelation 21, who gets the hope? It says the thirsty, just the thirsty. You take it without cost because Jesus has already paid for it for you. How do you get this living water, this living hope that comes without cost for you? It's through Jesus, but it cost him his life. If you thirst for this new hope, for this everlasting life, do you thirst for what's right and righteousness Jesus quenches that thirst and he was the first one, the Bible tells us that went into the grave, he was resurrected and if you believe that he was resurrected for you then he is the first fruits he's the first one that was resurrected 1 Corinthians 15 and it says you will be following him in resurrection with him if you thirst for him, you will shine for him you'll reflect him You'll reveal him as Daniel talks about and turn many to righteousness and it is a light that will never go out. All right, Lauren, that sounds great. When is it gonna happen? I don't know. Listen to what Daniel says. He had the same question. But you, Daniel, shut up the words. Verse four, seal the book until the time of the end. Many in this time of the end shall run to and fro, right? Sounds like a mom with four kids and soccer. And knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on the bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? Even these angelic beings in heaven are like, how long are we gonna let this go on for? Like, this is terrible. How long is this going to keep going on for? How how long? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who is above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half time. Thanks for the specifics. (laughs) And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things will be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Great, we're with you, Daniel. Then I said... Oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But you, Daniel, go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. He says, if we're wise, if you're following Jesus, if you love God, if you're reading the scriptures, you will have an element of clarity at the time of the end. He says, the wicked, and this is important to understand, will continue to do wicked stuff. In other words, Twitter shouldn't shock you. The way people around you act shouldn't shock you. They don't know Jesus, they don't love Jesus. Like It shouldn't shock us that natural people do naturally wicked stuff. That It should shock us when there's something nice happens, right? So he's like, wicked things are going to happen. For how long? All the way up until this time of the end. Well, it, w- it, w- it would seem that we should have a clue here. When is the end going to happen? And he refers to this moment. He says there's going to be this abomination of desolation. Now, he's likely, it's debated, referring back to Antiochus when Antiochus went into the temple, set up a statue of Zeus, and decided that he should be worshipped. Antiochus was a prototype, he was someone that would eventually look ahead to this figure of antichrist who would do something similar. So when offerings cease, when worship is taken away, when you're not allowed to worship God in the way that he intended us to worship him, there is an abomination that takes place like Antiochus in a temple, you know something is happening. But the point is it won't go on forever. Notice there's a number of days again. That's not for us to try to figure out, is that days, weeks, months, years? Get out your chart and try to figure out what day Jesus is coming back. No, the number of days given here reminds us this, that there is a time when evil, wicked rulers and the most wicked ruler will come to an end. There is an allotted amount of days. Every kingdom here has an end, except the kingdom of God and God wins. Because of that, we can step back and say, okay, Interesting. I hope that we can understand this and see it in our day. But because of that, we can hear the words written to Daniel, go your way and rest. Rest because Jesus is victorious. Rest, you and I can rest because he is our Sabbath rest. Rest because he has a better kingdom. We can trust him. He's resurrected. Rest because he is the better king. That means today, perhaps you're dealing with like years of pain or maybe you're on your own day one of 1,290 or three and a half years of what looks like torture that is coming, the book of Daniel, which opened with God, allowing his people to go into exile, ends with Daniel still in exile, right? But God is saying to him, Daniel, you can rest and have assurance that you are going to make it to the end. And those of you who are in Christ, where Christ is your righteousness, you're not trying to achieve your own righteousness on your own, you can be at rest. At rest from trying to do great things, at rest from trying to please God in some form or some way. He is pleased because of Jesus and you can have assurance that like Daniel, you will make it to the end. And because of Jesus, you have that same assurance and that same rest. Let's pray. God, we are grateful For this man, Daniel, for his life, his faithfulness, we see a man that went through horrific things and yet he trusted you persevering to the end. And God, we thank you that that Jesus has persevered on our behalf and that he is the greater Daniel who now imputes his life to us. We thank you for the great hope that we have in a future that's coming that's going to be greater, grander, more beautiful than than what we can fathom. We thank you that this is, for us as followers of Jesus, as bad as it gets, and that we have a great hope in the final kingdom. We rest in you, we trust you, we love you, and now we come to your table celebrating the truth of eternity, and that is the Lamb of God with us. In Jesus' name, amen.